0: Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds.
1: Hello there, and welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I hope you're all having a great time out in the garden. The weather has been sunny and warm perfect for native trees and shrubs to start blooming. Right now, I've got quite a number of early flowering native plants starting to blossom, which is beneficial to newly emerging bumblebee queens. I think we've got an interesting show for you today. Today, we'll be talking to Marge Gibson, founder and executive director of Raptor Education Group, Incorporated in Antigua, Wisconsin. We'll be talking about the recent loon fallout in her area. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. What exactly is a loon fallout? When loons fly north back to their breeding range in the spring, they can fly at altitudes of 4,000 to 6,000 feet. If a mixture of extremely cold air and moisture occurs, a loon's body can ice up, leaving them unable to fly. Recently, dozens of migrating loons fell out of the sky and landed in remote wooded areas northwest of Green Bay, Wisconsin. A loon's legs are located very far back on its body rendering the bird unable to stand up and walk. Their anatomy is designed solely for flying and swimming. The birds were left injured and stranded. The media played up the event as a strange phenomenon, but fallout is a danger for loons every spring. The question being asked now, however, is this. Is climate change creating an increase in fallout events? Here with me now is Marge Gibson, founder and director of Raptor Education Group Incorporated to talk about the recent fallout event that occurred in her region. Thank you so much for joining us today, Marge.
2: Thank you. I appreciate your doing this podcast.
1: Well, there was an awful lot of chatter on Facebook about the loon fallout, so I thought I would ask you about it. But first of all, could you tell our listeners who you are and about Reggie and the role that you play there?
2: I'm a wildlife rehabilitator. My husband and I founded Raptor Education Group over 30 years ago. We also had a large facility in Southern California before this one, and I did field research at that time, but uh, came back to Wisconsin where I'm from to spend time with my parents as they got older and developed our facility here, just responding to need, need of care for the large birds.
1: That's wonderful. So now you take in a lot of birds every year. How many birds do you take in?
2: Over a thousand. We do about a hundred bald eagles a year. We do all the trumpeter swans for the state. We're part of the reintroduction in the late 1990s, as well as now we have foster parents that can raise orphans without imprinting. So it becomes an important slot for us to fill.
1: And tell me, how many loons do you get in every year?
2: We get about 20 loons a year, which is a fair number. They're challenging to take care of in captivity, and they need, you know, live minnows, live food. They have problems such as lead poisoning, swallowing jigs and lead sinkers and that sort of thing, getting wrapped in fishing line. So those are things that we see through the year when they're here breeding on the breeding grounds, fireworks, injuries people tossing fireworks into ponds and catching babies on fire and things. It really becomes responding to their needs, whatever that happens to be. But this year, we had another situation where, as they were migrating, they ran into trouble.
1: Now, could you talk about that? You refer to it as loon fallout. What exactly happens?
2: First of all, when loons are migrating, there's a scenario by which they see shiny asphalt from above, there's sort of a chemical component in the asphalt that makes it shiny. So they think it's water and they land in it when in fact they're landing on asphalt. That's called a landing. We're used to that. We see a couple every year of accidental landings. And you know, we see the issues that are associated with that, which is scraped up feet, sometimes external damage from that. But those birds are usually in really good weight. We can get them back into large water. Unfortunately, sometimes people put them in ponds, which they can't get out of. So, you know, it becomes just a a situation where we have to educate the public as to, you know, how to handle them and what their needs are. But a fallout is different. A fallout is something that we identified about 25 years ago we realized that there were large numbers, like a migrating flock of loons coming through. It was sort of a different setup than the landings. It wasn't raining, for instance. It wasn't, you know, warmer weather as they're migrating through. But in fact, we had ice storms. Most of our lakes were still frozen at that time. And they were icing at altitude. We found two bodies at least of loons that had fallen and were still encased in ice, like a uh, ice jacket, you know, it made us realize that this was a different scenario.
1: Right. Now, what do you think the elements are that come together in a case like that to cause a fallout?
2: This is something that we're actually still studying and working with meteorologists and so on and so forth, because it's the same sort of setup that happens with planes. We hear about airplanes being de-iced in certain situations. It's the same sort of thing. And when we started to study the shape of a loon and the fact that their legs are to the rear of them, so they have that smooth silhouette in the front, like a kind of like a pancake, like an airplane body, you know, there were similarities and ones that we hadn't even thought about in the past. So that was part of it as well. And now, you know, of course, the meteorologists and the people that are helping us with atmospheric things are also looking at some of those phenomena as well. We see the problem is, is that when they come down, they come down in certain areas and we can actually outline the areas, you know, where they're falling. We can plot it on a map. And so we will know atmospherically what was going on at that time. But they come down in large numbers. And, you know, it seems to be a flock that's going through.
1: Right. So in other words, just so our listeners understand, the loons migrate south for the winter. But when springtime arrives, they are getting back to their lakes so they can meet their mate and they can breed and raise their loon chicks. And this is when it's happening is when they're returning in the spring to their lakes up north.
2: That's correct. And, you know, every year is different, of course. You know, our spring was very, very late this year. And in fact, our lakes were still frozen up to two weeks ago here, and it's well into what should be. Late spring weather, and you know, our lakes were still frozen. So, of course, once they land on something like that, they need a lot of water to take off. And if the lake is still frozen or partially frozen, they really can't do it, at least in most circumstances. So their life is kind of filled with challenges, and loons are lowering in numbers all the time. So, you know, this is something that we are concerned about is, you know, is this going to be with climate changes? Is this going to be something that we see more of? We're kind of looking into that sort of thing as well.
1: That was just going to be my next question. Is it your sense that this is something that has always happened when temperatures drop on occasion? Or is it something that you think is linked maybe to climate change?
2: It's a good question because quite honestly, we do a large number of loons and It's not a bird that wildlife rehabilitators see a lot. First of all, they're kind of secretive birds. And for people to pick them up is kind of unusual because, you know, they don't know a lot about the species. It's not like an owl or an eagle or anything like that. It's so different that you know, there's not a lot of common knowledge about them. So we see a large number of them and we do more loons here than most places. So it's possible that we're just seeing the amount of work that we do is being reflected in um, how many are coming through. Those are questions that we're hoping to answer, but it's been really fascinating looking at it. As I say, getting the birds back out And hopefully next year, they'll have an easier time of it. I think that, you know, the more we know, it's one of those situations, the more we know, the more questions we ask. We're understanding the species better. The natural history of every species is the key to allowing it to recover in, in wildlife rehabilitation. These are things that, again, the more we know, the more we understand about them and about things that are important to them.
1: Right. I was just going to say loons are so muscular and they're such strong flyers. But like you say, they're aerodynamic with this football shape, so they are prone to icing. Would you say that the temperature would have to drop well below 32, like into the 20s for that to occur?
2: Well, the situation is, and this is on the ground, it's a bit warmer. But at altitude where they're flying, normally they migrate about 6,000 feet, but they could well be lower if they were coming in to check. They do sort of reconnaissance. They're staging in large lakes south of us, whether it's in southern Wisconsin or in Illinois or on the Mississippi, but they're staging, waiting for the lakes up north to open. So they take reconnaissance flights up to say, hey, is it open yet or not? And then go back. But it's colder at altitude, and this is why, of course, planes ice. Again, it's something that we're really trying to understand. The concept is relatively new. It's something that we've talked about for quite a while because we've been finding them. And, you know, there's no other explanation why they're wearing a coat of ice. And they really fall hard, but they don't have the type of injuries that they would have if they were landing. In other words, their feet are totally unaffected. They're not falling and landing and then trying to get away on their feet. The scenarios are so different that it has to be a different type of phenomenon.
1: So in other words, they're not surviving these falls from that altitude.
2: Many don't. We have mushroom season is upon us here in northern Wisconsin. You know, we have people in the woods now, you know, looking for whether it's wildflowers or mushrooms, and they're finding bodies of loons. And there would be no way that a loon would land in a wooded area. That's totally against anything that's, you know, their natural history. For them to be found in areas that are not associated or near lakes or, you know, near things that could be construed as a lake from above, it's fascinating. As I say, there's so much to learn about that and why it happens. But the first icing that we had a lot of them was in 2011. You know, we were getting calls from people out, you know, in fields and so on and so forth, finding a loon's body dead, of course, but in the woods, three or four miles away from habitable areas. That just makes no sense at all that they would land there. Again, it's interesting. And it would make sense that, you know, this would happen to some birds on approach or on migration. But the whys and wherefores, and of course the body shape has to be included in that because most birds it wouldn't happen to. But they again have legs kind of breaking that outline up that are more forward placed than a loon would. And a loon has the solid bones most Birds have hollow bones. So they're a very different being, one that we will understand better once we know all those particulars.
1: Right. So that injury falling at that altitude is much different from what you were saying. When a loon is looking to land and they see asphalt with that shiny, they put you know, their feet down. It right. looks they like put their feet water. Down. Yeah. So they land, but it's a hard landing. They end up with hawk lesions and keel lesions, disorientation, and all that. So it's pretty obvious to. St- tell one from the other, I would think. It's
2: very different. They don't have any foot problems at all. Their feet aren't out front. They're not landing. They're falling. Some, you know, if they're encased in ice, you know, when they land, all that happens is the ice breaks. If they land on, uh, you know, something that's already kind of softened, if ice is starting to come out from the soil, they'll sort of bounce. But they do have that very strong keel to protect them that uh, might be part of their survival from this. So I think, is it something that's happened before? Obviously, this has been happening since loons were migrating. (laughs) It's just that I think people maybe weren't in the right place at the right time or just not cognizant of what was going on. We find them or they come into us as patients. So therefore, it's obvious to us. I think that that's why wildlife rehabilitators can... Lend information, you know, about wildlife disease and wildlife injuries to wildlife biologists and, and wildlife educators.
1: Now tell me about the rescue efforts this year. So you said people were finding them in the woods and calling you.
2: When they're in the woods, they're usually bodies and they don't find them right away because remember, this is, you know, a time when we still have snow in our woods. So people find them. They find dried bodies and feathers when they are searching for mushrooms and things like that. So it might be a month out or or more, but they are finding them deep in the woods, which a loon would not land in the woods. Even if they were on land and trying to scoot to a body of water, you know, for safety, that wouldn't be in the woods. You know, they're found in odd places. They just, you know, are finding bodies, not live loons anymore.
1: Now, when a loon is injured and stranded in the woods like that, will they vocalize?
2: Not usually, because that would call predators to them. And, you know, they're already in trouble. So they don't want to attract attention, especially from predation, because they don't have a means by which to escape. They can't run. They can't walk. Even they're scooting on their keel, on their belly. But they're not a bird that can get away from predation unless they're in water. And there, they're absolute kings, of course, of their environment. But on land, they're challenged. And so they will not. They will be very quiet trying to hide.
1: Right. So what would you tell listeners if they found a loon on the ground, stranded or in a parking lot? What's the best thing to do?
2: On the East Coast, there are several wonderful organizations that work with loons. And I think giving those folks a call to alert them that there is a loon there. They may have may be able to give you direction to get it into a box or into a safe place so it can go to a wildlife rehabilitator. But the one thing that people seem to do instinctively is to try to find water for it. And unless it's a large body of water, I mean, we're talking, you know, um, quarter to a half mile with a runway where they can take off, don't do it because they can't get out of it. And therefore, they're locked there until someone can remove them. Or or there's a happenstance where a very, very strong wind day where they, you know, by some miracle, they're able to get airborne. But learning about loons is something that I think, learning about birds in general, but the general public plays a huge role and can in helping our bird populations, just by learning about them and about learning what's important to their survival. So if you see a loon on land, try to call somebody, call an expert that can give you some information. If you're out of options and it needs to be removed from the road or whatever, you know, it needs to go into a large body of water, not a small one. That's something that you can do and hopefully save its life. If it's beached again after that, it probably has lead poisoning or something along those lines and will need to go into a wildlife rehabilitator for treatment.
1: Right. So they need at least, what, 300 to 600 yards just to get going. And they run on their feet. a quarter mile. Yeah, Yeah, in order to take off. So they need that long stretch of water.
2: Right. Exactly. They're heavy bodied. Again, they're so different from other birds. They're heavy bodied. They're not like most birds. They have solid bones to fight gravity. You know, they need to run across the water until they can get speed up or which they can get airborne. You know, that's quite a ways.
1: Right. Just to wrap up, I was going to ask you about the ancient migratory pathways that these loons have followed for centuries Every time a marsh or watery area gets filled in to build a hotel or put in a parking lot, they lose yet another spot to land at the end of the day when they're tired and they need to rest for the night. And that's another contributing factor that forces them to be desperate enough to land on a parking lot. So preserving those ancient migratory spots where they're used to resting for the night, I would think would be paramount.
2: It's very important. I think that, you know, as a society, we simply need to be more cognizant of our wildlife and of the things they offer us back so much. I think that, you know, birds in particular, While well, it's my field, but they bring such peace, even, you know, bird watching and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's important that we understand their needs. Those needs are, quite honestly, our needs as well. We need to be more cognizant of others and of other species and to to do the right thing.
1: I'd like to thank Marge Gibson for joining us today. You can find out more about Loon Fallout and the Raptor Education Group Incorporated by going to their website at raptoreducationgroup.org.
0: Join Americans everywhere in the one-third for the birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook.
1: And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now.